American nonfiction writer familiar to Chinese readers through Chinese documentary trilogy *River Town*, *Oracle Bones*, and *Country Driving*, came to China in the mid and late 1990s. As a volunteer of the American Peace Corps, he taught in Fulin, Chongqing for two years and wrote his observation of Chinese society from the perspective of an outsider. After many years' absence from China, He Wei returned to this familiar and also fresh land in 2019. Settled in Chengdu with his wife Zhang Tonghe and twin daughters, he now teaches nonfiction writing and freshman composition classes at Pittsburgh College of Sichuan University. Since then, I've always been the journalist on the outside, and I feel like it's good sometimes to be a little more connected, you know, because you learn something about what a university is like. Most foreign journalists. You're never directly connected with the system. You know, you're always outside. In some ways, that's a benefit, but it can be a drawback. That's actually one reason why I came back as a teacher. This year, He Wei experienced a sudden epidemic in China. He wrote a long article entitled "How China Controlled the Coronavirus" and published it on the New Yorker, which triggered many discussions. I think that's one thing my students learn in the class right now. As I say, you know, you've got to keep track of things. You know, this is a historical moment, and you will want to remember this someday. So you should take notes, write about the things you're noticing in your daily life. This is—it's an important historical moment. In this episode, we came to Chengdu to start conversation with He Wei. From this dialogue with him, we may be able to understand the writer who is famous for writing Chinese documentary themes, looking back on the past China and writing, as well as his observation and confusion about the present. 大家好，我是何伟，呃，我也是今天很高兴来你们的节目。Hi,、uh, my name is Gu Yu. I'm a big fan of Peter Hassler. I used to work for the Foreign Media in Beijing. Gu Yu, do you have anything to ask? I know Fulin was the inspiration of your book, but generally speaking, when foreigners come to China, they normally go to Hong Kong, they go to Shanghai, or they even go to Beijing. Hardly anyone will choose Sichuan as a place to live. So, do you have any other consideration when choosing Chengdu this time? You know, Leslie and I both lived in Beijing for a long time, and I liked Beijing. It was a little big for me, but I loved having the village, and I loved my neighborhood. Actually, I lived in one of the Hutong, and that was nice. But after all of those years there, we felt like, and actually, when we lived in Beijing, both of us did all of our reporting outside of Beijing. I almost never wrote about Beijing. So I would go to Zhejiang, or she would go to Dongguan, and she had an apartment there. I would go to Zhejiang, and I, there was a hotel. I would stay there for a week, you know. And but with children, you can't do that. Oh. As easily, so we decided. Okay, if we're going to write about the Neidi, we can't live in Beijing or Shanghai and travel there. It's too hard. So we need to find a place in the Neidi. <laughs> and so we thought. And I said, Well, I want to be able to talk to my former students and go back to Fuling. So I would like to be in Chongqing or Chengdu. So and we we've always liked Chengdu. It's a neat city.、Um, I, I do love the culture. I like the you know Sichuanhua and the Chuanzai and everything about. I like the people here, so we thought it was a good place, and we've been very happy with it. We like Chengdu a lot. Yeah. Your first job in China was teaching, but it became famous for journalistic and nonfiction writing. Why choose teaching this time as your job? Most foreign journalists, you're never directly connected with the system. You know, you're always outside, 
in some ways that's a benefit, but it can be a drawback. That's actually one reason why I came back as a teacher. And then since then, I've always been the journalist on the outside. And I feel like it's good sometimes to be a little more connected, you know, because you learn something about what a university is like. What is the Donway like now? But also my interactions with students are different than a journalist interview, you know. And so I think it's healthy. So that's, that's one reason why I wanted to do this, you know, to, to come back as a teacher, because it lets me see something different. I have a different kind of connection to people. And I think it's also like, I feel like I, hopefully I can help the students learn something, and that's nice. Because journalism, you're kind of always taking stories, yeah. and then you're putting them out there, and it's, it's it, I don't know, it's, it's some level it's not entirely human. It concerns me, you know, like, and I try to counteract that by having, like, I'm still in touch with the people who was teaching in Fuling. I'm still in touch with some of the factory people from Zhejiang, you know, the people in Sanja, like, like Wei Jia, the little boy that I wrote about, I saw him last week in Shanghai, you know, and so, you know, I, I try to maintain these connections, but still, I'm, I'm always worried about the distance that you have as a journalist, especially as a foreign journalist. And so teaching is good for that reason, too. What do you think of the unit, Danwei? Do you like the unit? I think Danwei may be a very Chinese word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, in my situation, it's different, right? Because I'm, I'm kind of coming in and then I'm going to go out. It's not my future. It's not my entire world. But it still is. I mean, even I mentioned earlier, like, they don't do the banquets anymore, right? That's an interesting thing to notice that when you were at a university in the 1990s, you would have all these banquets, and now you don't. It says something about, you know, the various campaigns they've had. But no, it's just it's just very useful to see how things work. Just like even for the I Ching, like, I have to give my way, like I tell them where I am every day and my <laughs> Tiwen and all that stuff, right? And I do the same thing with my daughters, you know, like we have to Jielong. We also have to Jielong. What do you have to reply? I just, the, my daughters, every day I have to Jielong their, like, health. When they're in school, we have to take their temperature. And then Jielong, you wrote an article on New York about being Chengdu during this epidemic period. What kind of experience was that time for you? Yeah, it was, it was a really difficult experience. I mean, I think, to, to, especially to have children at that time. It was very disruptive to everybody. And you're very, there's a lot of confusion. What exactly is going on? What's the nature of this disease? The information is changing all the time. And then, of course, the isolation. You know, you're in, very few people were going out. And, you know, the, the lockdown was so intense here. You know, so that was, it was a really challenging time. And so now I've written kind of a follow-up to that story. I think it's very important for Americans to see certain, because I do actually, you know, there are some things that were done here that you couldn't do in America. But there are some very useful lessons. And I, I think the United States has not learned very much from other countries, not just China, but lots of other places that have done a better job. So I feel like people in, in the U.S. need to think more seriously about their system and their government structures, actually. I, mean, I think there's, it's been a total failure of leadership in America. But it also has to do with the lack of government structures at the local level. And I think Americans really need to think about their public health infrastructure, and they need to think about ways of changing that. But that is one reason why China has been successful with the epidemic, is they did expect people to do things, and they've tried to handle this epidemic in a systematic way. Now, some of it I don't think is necessary. And so it's kind of like it's annoying in some ways, but it also tells me actually that there's a real system at work here, whether it's the parents' jielong or the shi going and knocking on every door in their neighborhood, 
or it's the people at the Chinese Centers for Disease Control doing contact tracing. They asked people to work here. Americans haven't done that yet. You know, like they, Americans think that if they had the lockdown and then they wear a mask, it's going to be okay. That's not true. You have to do the work. They're, they're too lazy, in my opinion. Like that's the big problem with the American response. They didn't do the testing and they didn't do the contact tracing. And it, those require investment. You have to have people, just like those Shutri people who are working and knocking on doors, you've got to do it. And it's boring, right? It's like my students and the reporting. It's like my own reporting. It's a lot of wasted time. But that's what it takes. This is a part of the unit, Danwei system. In colleges and universities, you should be familiar with the people in the system. Yeah, no, so you learn a lot from that and you see how, you know, you, you meet other teachers. And no, so I've been very, it's been great to be at, at Chuanda, you know. And, I, and also education is so fundamental to any society, but I think especially to China. It's really important to understand how this system works. And so, I mean, I'm teaching at a university. My former students are teaching mostly in Chuzhong or Gaozhong. And my daughters are in a Xiaoxue. <laughs> I kind of see all the different levels at this time. That, that to me is very useful. You know, it's, it teaches me a lot. I've learned a lot this year. So if the 26-year-old Peter Hassler arrived in 2019's China rather than 1996 China, what do you think will catch that young Peter's eye the most? This particular moment is fascinating, right? Because we've had this epidemic and, and we have, you know, all of these U.S.-China tensions. And so it's a, there's no shortage of things to write about, I think. I mean, I, but that has always been true in China. And I think you naturally gravitate to whatever is most interesting and most striking. So sometimes people say, oh, it seems like you, were, you came at a really fascinating time. The thing that was fortunate about my timing in the 90s was that China was open enough for me to live in a place like Fuling and to get to know people. And five or ten years earlier, that would not have been possible. Mm. But from that point on, there's always been interesting stuff to write about. So I think a young person who comes to China now, there's just as much to write about. The problem is that it's hard to find magazines and newspapers that pay you in America, you know, So because the industry has changed a lot. So when I, after Fuling, when I went to Beijing in 1999, I was a freelance writer, and it was pretty easy to make a living right from the beginning, you know, because there were papers in America, they would buy stories. So I had no problem getting started. And then eventually I found my way to the New Yorker. But that initial year and a half was really important because I was figuring out how to do research here. But I had the support of those newspapers, you know, and now it's harder for a young person. So I I think that's the challenge for like a young foreigner. It's also harder to stay here. I mean, yeah. now, obviously, with the I Ching, it's totally, you can't come in, right? Yeah. But even before that, it's harder to get a Qianzheng. Um, Since you returned to China last year, is there anything that is beyond your expectation? Yeah, I mean, Egypt was really fascinating because it's so different, you know, and, and you, the people are amazing. Like, Egyptians are really, they're incredibly likable. They're very charismatic. There's a lot of ability there but it's not being channeled by the institutions. The school system is just decaying, getting worse and worse all the time. Um, the government employs a lot of people, but it's, they don't really do much, and it doesn't really set the terms for society very well. So coming back to China, I do appreciate a lot the way that things are structured. Sometimes it's, it's a negative, and there's some things here that I don't like, you know, that they're structured too tightly, in my opinion. But there's also a lot of positive things to having structure. 
we could see that with the epidemic. I think this is the difference with the United States. I mean, the United States lacks the kind of localized health structures that you need to fight this kind of epidemic. You can't just depend on people to do the right thing. You can't just say, be careful, wear a mask. It's not enough. You know, you need to have testing, you need to have contact tracing, and you need organizations, institutions to do this. And China was lucky in a way because they had the shutri. Mm. They used those a lot. That was a very useful structure because they could direct those people and they could recruit new people to help them. A lot of this, especially the contact tracing, the people in the shutri did a lot of contact tracing. They would help, you know, they would have an epidemiologist who's directing it but they would have those people help them with phone calls. Also with getting information, they go and knock on your door and they you know, see who's living in the apartment. They tell you what the situation is. That's useful. Back in 1996, China was really in economic backwater. Why you choose to come to such a country and why you decided to become a China-based journalist? I'm really curious about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the best way to explain this is so after I, so when I finished at Oxford University, I realized I didn't want to become a professor. I knew I wanted to write, but I wasn't sure what kind of writing I would do. I had always wanted to live overseas and study a language, but I didn't know where. Mm. You know, and actually when I was in college as an undergraduate at Princeton, I had applied for the Peace Corps when I was a senior and they had they were going to send me to Africa. And then but then I got a scholarship to Oxford, so I stopped the Peace Corps application. So I still had this idea that maybe I should go to some part of the world and have an experience like that. Um, but I wasn't sure how. So when I left Oxford, I traveled for six months. So I went to Prague in the Czech Republic in Jiaku. And then I traveled from there across Eastern Europe and Russia. And then I took the train from Russia through Mongolia to Beijing, from Moscow to Beijing. Um, and that was the first time I'd ever been to Asia. Um, and so that was part of a six-month trip. I ended up going through China and Vietnam and Thailand and Indonesia and so it was my first time really traveling anywhere in the developing world. Um, but a lot of what I was doing was thinking about what's next. And by the end of that trip, I realized, okay, I want to apply to the Peace Corps again. I think this will be good for me in a lot of ways. But my ideas had changed, and I decided I wanted to go to China. That was just from that contact. So I had not been interested in China before that. And so, but when we were, that was 1994. And so and I arrived in Beijing, and I actually wasn't expecting to have much interest in it, but I, you could tell there was an energy there. I mean, you could tell that people were motivated, that things were changing. Even just as a tourist, I could see that. So that became my idea was to come back. And so I thought that it would make me a better writer, but the idea was very open-ended. I also thought that in terms of becoming a mature person, it was good to have this kind of experience. I also thought it was a useful thing to be in, involved in this kind of exchange where I was teaching, but I was also learning about a place. I thought that was a really important experience. So all of those ideas were in my head, but I didn't have a specific goal. Like I didn't go there thinking that I would write a book. That actually was not at all what I planned because I was only 27 and I hadn't written very much. So I didn't think that I was at a level where I could do that. But the truth was that that experience was so intense and very demanding. So it made me grow up a lot, I think. I became a lot more mature in those two years. And it was really an amazing experience because at near the end of those two years, my former teacher, John McPhee, wrote me a letter because I wrote him and I said, I'm thinking about applying for journalism jobs and maybe trying to become a foreign correspondent in China. And he wrote me a long letter, like a thousand word letter. And he said, 
you should write about fooling. I had sent him some letters and things. He said, you know, that's a book. You should write a book about what you've been doing. And I hadn't thought about it until... I was too busy there. You know, life was so intense and it was all focused on our life there. The teaching was very demanding because I loved those students and I wanted to do a good job. It was very demanding to study Chinese and very demanding to be a foreigner in this place. I didn't think about the future for about a year and a half. Everything was just that moment. And so, and I certainly hadn't thought about, I was taking notes. I was always writing because I always did that, you know, in, my, in a diary. Um, but I hadn't thought about writing a book until he wrote me that letter. And that was like in December of 1997. So I had about six months left. And suddenly it made sense to me. And I realized, you know, maybe I should try this. You know, what, what do I have to lose? And I also realized I wanted to preserve something from this experience. And so even if it wasn't published, it would be good to write this. Um, but once I started writing, I realized that my voice had really changed. Like my writing voice it was kind of an amazing experience because just when I would sit down and type and write, describe this place and the people I knew, I had a lot more confidence. And, you know, and that was because I'd grown up, you know, because those two years were like 10 years in terms of they had forced me, you know, there were many experiences that embarrassed me. There's parts in the book that I'm not proud of, you know, where I would get angry at people, you know, as a foreigner in that place, there was a lot of pressure on you and you made mistakes, you know, and and that was a good experience, you know, to recognize my own weaknesses and my own flaws. And I also had to change a lot of my ideas. That's also a really good experience for a young person to have. Have you ever made an experience conversion in your writing? Because you just said that you may encounter some difficulties in life and those things that make you feel very embarrassed. But it seems to be presented in a very humorous way in this book. But there was also a lot of humor. So our daily life, yeah, there were things that were very difficult. But there also, it was mostly enjoyable. And we laughed a lot. Adam and I, would, we, we would take a lot of pleasure in the funny things that happened. And sometimes we were part of the ridiculousness of the situation. And so actually when I wrote the book, the first draft, and I sent it to Adam, he said, you know, he's like, I, I think this is really funny in these parts. But I'm, he said, sometimes I wonder, like, are people going to think you're making fun of this place and these people? Um, so I had to really confront that, and I had to think about, like, is the humor appropriate or not? Mm -hmm. And I finally decided that's the reality, and that's how we dealt with the place. And the people there had a good sense of humor, and they laughed at things too. And for me to remove the humor would actually, in my opinion, be disrespectful, because then I'm saying, oh, these are the poor people in fooling, and I have to write about them very carefully. We can't laugh about anything. And that wasn't the way life was. You know, and people there, yeah, they had less money than they do now, but they had very rich lives. They had a lot of interests. They had interesting ideas, and we engaged in very natural ways. And the best thing was just to portray that as accurately as I could. And humor was part of it. There was, a, yeah, and there were also challenges. There were parts of life that were very frustrating. Um, and I wrote about those as well. You know, um, but the, my goal was always just to try to be as honest. You know, there's a lot of things about that book that I would now I would write differently because I feel like I'm a better writer now. But in terms of the way I portrayed it, I actually don't have any regrets. I, I think I was as accurate as possible. Do you think a journalist or a writer needs to be judgmental or he just need to present the thing as it is? Yeah, yeah, no, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think you have an obligation as a writer to not make a judgment, but you, you want to be patient with people, you want to listen to them, 
and you want to think and sometimes it's not so much judgmental as it is analytical so often what i'm trying to do as a writer it's i'm not judging in terms of this is wrong or this is stupid how did they get to this stage or how did they get to this to this idea that's what's important so it's not you know my goal is not necessarily to judge them but i'm i'm so i'm, I'm analyzing i do the same thing in china you know well wrote you are not going to jump to conclusions but to observe the phenomenon and try to analyze the causes there is a very good example in country driving. You said, why do these Chinese people have to rush? Because for this generation, the economic soil is as uncertain as a desert in Ordos. People have no time to discern the direction. The reason why successful people succeed is that they do first and then think. You are analyzing why these people are so aggressive, but they don't know why. Yeah, I mean that that's gets your role as a writer is to try you're observing things, but you are, you know, you do add your own experience, your own expertise or your own analysis. It's very important to try to put these things into a new light, you know, and to try to explain why things are happening the way they are. You know, and you want to do it while being respectful, being sympathetic to the challenges that people are facing. I think it's a hard thing to do, and it's it's hard. It was especially hard in the 1990s. You know, when I was in a place where people had had been very isolated, they had been relatively poor, um, and so it was a you know it was, it was quite a challenge to try to work your way through these ideas that people had and their values and try to figure out where they came from and, and how they were changing things that maybe were seemed so average that people here didn't write about them, you know, because it was every day and it wasn't interesting in some ways, but. Because to me, everything was new and interesting. Maybe I would spend more time analyzing it, you know. But I mean, I think it's that is something that changed. I feel. I think in that early era when I lived here, everybody was so busy and the challenges were so intense to try to change, you know, because the system was changing and you had to respond. If you were a citizen in Fuling or in Lishui or someplace, you you couldn't think about it. You just had to figure it out, you know, and you didn't have time. So there was very little time for reflection or for analysis, and I think now there are more Chinese who can step back a little bit, even though it's very competitive society. There is more of an interest in trying to figure out well why are things like this, you know, and so how, where are we going, you know, what is is you know what does this say about us? So I think it's good that people have a little more space to think about that. He Wei talked about the change. In fact, change is also a very important thing in our book. When you go back to China many years later, do you feel the severe impact of that change? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I've liked living in in places like China and in Egypt. Also,、um, you know, as a nonfiction writer, one of the issues is that it's you can't find plot. Like, in, if you're a fiction writer, you can just make up the plot,、mm -hmm. but for nonfiction. You have to tell the truth, right? And so sometimes what you do is you take somebody's story and you go, you back report it. So, you know, so I meet Gui and then I decide that I want to write about him. So I ask him what happened the last ten years, and he tells me. But he might not tell me the most important things. Actually, it's better to observe it, right? And then I can see. I don't have to rely on his interpretation. I can see what's happening. And so China was a, such an amazing place to be from 1996 to 2007 because you could see these changes happening, right? So in the like when I wrote about Sancha in Xinlu Zhongguo, 
you can see that village changing. As they build a road and the road is paved and people have contact with the city as their living standards go up, you can see what kind of changes that they're having. Um, and that's a very, it's harder to do that in the United States. Um, Egypt was also possible to watch these changes because we happened to be there during the revolution, right? So the first year we're there, they elect the Muslim Brotherhood as president. And the next year there's a coup, yeah, Morsi. And so you watch these amazing changes. And so, you know, that's part of why I like coming back here is to see how things are different. Did you start living in Sancha Beijing in 2002? So yeah, basically those five years you could see really big changes because of the automobiles, you know. In fact, it is village where you wrote about a change. At that time, why did you want to live in village? After all, Fuling, as you mentioned before, was a city. Yeah, I mean, the most basic reason I went to Sancha was was actually because... Oh, so I moved to Beijing in 1999, and then after I'd been there for like a year, a year, year and a half, I felt like my life was maybe too focused on the city. And I wanted to have some kind of place outside of the city. I also sort of wanted a different community, like a smaller community. And so I had this idea of finding, and a friend of mine was also interested. And so we drove around looking for a village, basically, where we could rent a house. And so that was really the reason. It wasn't for a writing project. It was more just personally, I felt like Beijing was a little bit overwhelming. And I wanted something smaller and a little more human that I could connect with. And that, but it turned out that to you know we became very close with this family that I wrote about, and and you know, and so it ended up being something that I wrote about as well. Um, but that was my main reason. I, th- I mean, I felt like this whole process of the countryside becoming the city was really important, and I had seen it from the beginning. My students were part of that process in Fuling, and so I was very aware of it, and I felt like as a somebody who's documenting what's going on in this country, I felt some responsibility to try to write about that. In the same way that I wanted to write about the factory. So when I wrote about uh, Li Shui in, in Zhejiang, the main reason I wanted to do that is I felt like, you know, this place, China is manufacturing so much for so many parts of the world. I should know more about that. You know, I want to spend time in a Kaifachu and in a Gongchang and see, talk, to, get to know it well. Um, and so I felt like in order to really portray this place, that was some background that I needed to have. It's interesting that the hostess of the family you met in Sancha is also a female worker, which connected the village with the factory. Why do you think it's important to write about female workers' life? Well, I mean, it was, you know, again, that was an issue you could feel. In, in, in Fuling, I wrote a lot about the status of women, too. You would see it from my my female students, who were many of my best students, were the, the female students. And so I was, you know, and a lot of the ones who stayed in touch with me after they went away were the girl students um, and who went to Shenzhen, you know, to Dagong and so on. And so I was very conscious of that that issue. Um, and also it seemed like an important part of China's changes, you know, was you could see the value of women was changing, actually. I mean, I felt like when I first was in Fuling, the families were still really emphasized boys, you know, and that that changed a lot actually in that decade. If you went to the Nongtun, people would talk about how they want needed to have sons, and they would look down on their girls. And the, some of my girl students would write about that experience in their own families. 
By the time we left in 2007, there was less of that, you know, it, it still existed, but partly because women were very important to the new economy and they were valuable, they had good jobs, um, families also valued them. So you would see that change. That's a kind of change. And you know, my wife wrote about that in much more detail than I did. And so in her reporting, you can really see how those things were changing. So out of the China trilogy, Rivertown, Orga Bones, and the Country Driving, which one is your favorite? Which one do you think have the highest literary value? I don't know. I mean, but also the the Sanbuquan is really Jiangcheng, Jiaguan, Jiaguan, and Xinjiang Zhongguo. I don't, you know, each book to me has its own things I like about it. Basically, there, and to me, they were all very different experiences. I was very grateful that I was in China during that period, and I also liked the fact that each one was a different kind of project. You know, so I felt like Jiangcheng is the most personal、um, because that's when I first came. And my story was important to that book. I think in the other books, my story was less important, so I didn't focus as much on myself. Jaguwen, I think I, you know, I, I like that book because it's a very ambitious literary project. It's like it, there's all of these different parts, and I was trying to figure out how to put them together, like things ranging from the Shang Dynasty、mm-hmm. to Shenzhen. You know, how do you connect these things, or the Wei Warzu, all these different things, and so. And that was a great writing project for me, and I I loved the challenge of that, and so that book has a special feeling for me there. And like Shunlu Zhongguo, for me was at the end of my time in China, ten years in China, I had learned I think how to report a story, and that book, in my opinion, is very intense reporting. Like for example, when I went to Lishui in Zhejiang, and I go to the Kaifachu, and I watch the factory. Through every stage, and I get to know the bosses. I get to know the technicians, the the average workers, the city. Like that, to me, was using my skills as a reporter in ways that I hadn't been able to do when I first came to China.、Um, so I appreciate that aspect of of that book. So each of them has a different meaning to me. When you first started driving alongside the Great Wall, you were around thirty-two years old. I'm around that age now, too. So I'm curious that when you were going, were you preparing for something or just wandering around in China? When I did that driving project on the wall, I, that was actually for National Geographic. Oh. So I had been commissioned to do a story about the Great Wall, which I thought、oh, maybe it's kind of boring because it's like the most obvious thing in China.、Uh-huh. But I was I just gotten my driver's license, and I had this idea. I was like, you know, actually it would be really interesting to write about driving. So why not just drive along that route and make that the story? And the magazine agreed, and that became the project. So that's how it started. Actually, it was a National Geographic assignment, and I turned it into a road trip.、Um, I've always liked driving. You know, I I grew up in in Missouri in the United States,、um, and everybody drives really early in Missouri. You know, at the time of your road trip, there were only about nine or ten million cars all over China. Well, this year the city of Beijing alone has around six million vehicles and many more highways than before. So, since you returned to China this time, have you made any road trip yet? How do you feel? It's totally different. Obviously, the numbers and one of the things that was really interesting about that experience was so few people were driving,、mm. and very few people would drive long distances. So, even in those days, if you were in Beijing and you had a car, you didn't leave Beijing. So, when you go on those on those new Gaosu Gonglu, when I was driving those, there would be nobody. They were totally empty. So, it was a really neat experience. Now it's you know. People have cars. They're also the skill is so much better. Like people drive so much better now, right? I mean, in those days, it was terrible. 
everybody was a shinsho, you know? <laughs> so, like, I'm very impressed at how quickly that changed. Also, people obeyed the traffic rules, you know? And those, I write in that book a lot about, it was very chaotic, you know? And people would, they would make turns in all kinds of crazy places. And now, I mean, you in Chengdu, I mean, people drive in an orderly fashion. It sort of shows you the value of system, right? I mean, you know, they set up a system, they, they built good roads, but they also find people if they did the wrong things. An entire generation of Chinese people how to drive, right? And it's, it's really impressive, actually. And so, like, I can cross the street in Chengdu now without worrying about getting killed, which I couldn't have done 20 years ago, and I couldn't do in Cairo, right? Wow. You know, Cairo is really... And if you talk to an Egyptian, they would say, oh, it's just the way Egyptians are just like this. It's not true, because Chinese were like this 20 years ago. But if you set up a system... And you, ex- you put demands on people. If you say you're expected to obey the rules, people will eventually figure it out. You think that nowadays people in China drive with much more politeness and they actually follow the traffic rule. Does it take the fun out of driving in China? I'm, uh, I'm getting my license right now, actually. Oh. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm in the process. I've done all the tests. I mean, yeah, it's so funny. I mean, when I get my license, <laughs> I've got to take a picture, right? So I get my medical check, and then they have me take a photograph with my hands up like this to prove that I have 10 fingers and thumbs. <laughs> it's like, that really is not necessary, right? But, but they still have that rule that if you're missing like a thumb, you can't get a driver's license. It's crazy, right? I mean, there's all these funny things that still exist. Or if you're colorblind, right? They gave me a test to make sure that doesn't make any difference in driving, right? I mean, so there's still, there are still some aspects of it. And the, the exam is still crazy, right? I mean, the questions they ask, because I'm, I'm studying for it now, because I, you know, if you don't study, you're not going to pass because they have some questions that are totally illogical, right? So there's still there's still aspects of it that are funny and, and sort of distinctive. When you get your Chinese driver license, where are you going to go this time? I mean, I want to use it to go around Sichuan and Chongqing, you know, because especially going back to Fuling and a lot of places that I know, it's just a hassle to always have to find a car or to get a train ticket and you know, I would like the freedom of being able to, you know, to go on my own and to go to places that I remember. And also to take my kids to places, right? I mean, Chengdu is, there are so many places that are nearby, and it'd be nice to be able to drive to the mountains and things like that. I assume this is not for collecting your nonfiction writing material this time, right? Yeah, it's not the same thing, you know. I mean, in Egypt, I, I had a license, and I drove, and I had a car there, but and it was a tool that I used for research, and it's kind of similar now. I don't think it's as interesting as it was 20 years ago, or it was 15 or whatever years ago when I got my license, 16, 17 years. Anyway, it was very interesting in the early 2000s to be driving in China because it was new, and you could go to, like, you know, Qirei, right? I went to the factory and look at the car factories, and, and yeah, and, 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 you know, now I think it's not as interesting to write about driving. In your work, there are some observations about Chinese people especially interesting. One of them is about the books they like to read. A young man from an industrial town said that his favorite book was Chen Gongxue. That is, Chen Gongxue can inspire and encourage them to climb up. During the time when everything is happening so quickly and everyone has this opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and actually, Leslie wrote a really interesting article about this in, in The New Yorker about these kind of success stories that are popular. And yeah, no, I, I mean, it says something about the moment, you know, like that the things that people read or take an interest in tell you a lot. I mean, that was, I think, one of the things that when Leslie and I were here before, I think people had a tendency to see the, the
the migrant workers and the factory workers almost as machines. You know, like they were there, they're coming from the countryside, millions and millions and millions, you know, more than 150 million of them. And they're going to the factories and they're doing these boring jobs. And you forget the interior life. And I always felt like one of the most important things was to look at what's their culture like? What are they reading? What are they watching? What do they do for entertainment? How do they find a boyfriend or a girlfriend? How do they get married? How do they raise their children? And so that sort of looking at the human side of it, that motivated me and it motivated Leslie, you know, as well. We felt like that was important. And, and once you got to know people, you realized that they did have very rich interior lives, like those workers were reading those books, and the books were kind of chaotic, right? I mean, they would have a weird mix of things. It'd be some Christian stuff and be thrown in with some, you know, straight Dale Carnegie capitalism, you know, and, and a really funny, and then Marx, there'd be some Marxism in there too, you know, and, and so it was chaotic, right? But it teaches you something. Did you literally see the books or hear from them? Yeah, yeah, so you would, you know, when you get to know people well, you start, you know, you can go to their dormitory or whatever, and then you look at what they're doing, and then you say, can I look at that? Sometimes they let you, you know, read their diary, for example, or you can look at a book and you take pictures of it. And this is, once you've been reporting something for a long period of time, people become more comfortable, and then you learn more about their lives. So it's like I wrote about my student Willie in Jago in Oracle Bones. And I, I quote from his diaries, and that's because I'd known him for a long time, and I asked him, you know, is it okay if I look at some of the things, your, your, your English notebooks, can we, and, and that was a useful thing. So yeah, you, you, you want to get to know people well enough that you get some sense of their interior lives. Yes, when I read Zhang Tonghe's Factory Girls, I have a very strong feeling that she really established a very close relationship with those girls. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, you know, she could have a contact with them that I could never have had. I mean, this is one thing, you know, as a reporter, you have your identity. And there are certain things that each identity is good for. Like for me as a Wagorn, like I could go into Lishui and people thought I was kind of weird and interesting. So they were sometimes more patient with me. And I was also very fluid. Like in the factory, I could talk with the Laoban. I could also talk with the Gongren and everybody could talk to me because I was a little bit weird. But I couldn't get to know like young women the same way that Leslie could, you know. So that was her something that she could do that was unique to her. Like I couldn't go and talk to those young women in the same detail that she could, and so that made sense for her to do that project. So you you figure out the project that's appropriate for you, um, and the way that I covered Li Shui was I thought the best way to use my identity. And the way that she covered、uh, Dongguan was the best way for her to use her identity. But yeah, it's very important to to get to know. But I mean, like when she would go to the countryside, for example, and with the workers when they went back for Chunjie, and she would go with them, they treated her like a Chinese person. So she would sleep in the bed with all of them. Yeah, you know, they use one bucket of water to wash, and first you wash, and then I wash, and and she would do the same thing. Now, if I go to the countryside, they won't do that because I'm the I'm the Laowai. So they always will treat me a little with a little more respect and a little more separation, even if I know people very well. So there's a limitation there. But with her, I mean, she was basically like a Chinese person in their eyes. So she could have a different type of contact. Yeah. But another question is that you can join the banquet more than Zhang Tonghe, and there are occasions that manifest the order of power. Yeah, yeah. That's why it was easier for me to talk to the bosses and the other people. Be, so my identity was a little more fluid. I could move up and down in the factory. So it was interesting because so she did a very focused look 
at this group of people, the young women who worked in the factory. And when I wrote about the factory in Lishui, I was looking more at the whole factory, like the different, but I, none of the parts did I look at as closely as she did. So it's different approaches, and you learn different things from each one. So you wouldn't say, this is valuable, that's not. Like, they're both valuable. And so that's one reason why it's important to have diversity in your reporters. Like, it is useful to have some people like me. It's also useful to have Chinese people, obviously, writing about China. It's also useful to have Chinese Americans. They have a different different perspective. So you want to have all different perspectives. You used to drink with leaders Lingdao, when you were in Fuling, and then you had to deal with some leaders in Li Shui factory. Did you feel something human, Qing in the banquets? One thing that's funny is that now there's no more of that. Oh. Because there's no more banquets at, at Chuanda. Like, there's never, there are <laughs> all of those scenes from Fuling with the Gambe and all of that, it's done. That That's a big change. Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's part of the, you know, you learn a lot in those situations, you know. So in fooling, when I would go to those banquets, we, we kind of hated it in some ways, but it taught us a lot. Uh, in the factory, it was really interesting, you know, and, and to get to know the people well. And yeah, it, just, it takes time. That's the whole thing. I mean, every, all of these projects, so that's one thing that's the same for Leslie's project and for mine, is both of them take time. Like, there's no way around that. There's no shortcut. You know, it's not efficient. You have to just be that. I tell my students that. You know, reporting is boring. <laughs> it's oh. not fun. You know, going out and being a journalist, you spend a lot of time that's wasted. It seems, you know, you're just there and nothing's really happening. I would spend hours in that factory in Lishray and nothing interesting would happen. But you're doing that because you don't know when something interesting will happen and when you will learn something. And it accumulates over time. But you can't expect it to be efficient. So what did you do when you were preparing to write? Oh, we're talking and, you know, I'm watching what they're doing. But, I mean, maybe they're just watching this machine for half an hour, you know, or, you know, so it's, you can't predict what's going to be. And I take notes the whole time. So if you look, I show my students in class now, I show them my notebooks because I, I put everything in the computer after I take notes. And they can see, like, all of these details that I'm taking. And most of them don't make it in the story. Like, we did, I, I show them in my class so we read other writers, but I also have them read my stories, and I talk about how I got that story. So, for example, we do one story that I wrote about when the Three Gorges Dam was closed, and I watched the water rising in Wushan, and I describe that for over like a five-day period. And I show them my notebooks from that time, and they can see all of the details. There's so much. I was just writing everything down, and only some of it gets in the story. How did you take your notes? Uh, most of it, for something like that, is I'm writing it in a notebook by hand. But then I put it in my computer because you can't leave it in the notebook. You can't search it. And after a while, you can't read it anymore because it's written really messily. So I always take notes um, by hand and then I put them in the computer and then I can go back to them. Like I can now I can go back, like I can go to my fooling notes I still have in my computer. Did your habit of taking notes begin fooling? Yeah, I mean, you, there's no other, when you're walking around, you have to take notes, right? And so you have to do it by hand. But I mean, nowadays, like if I do a sit-down interview, like if I'm interviewing an epidemiologist, I usually have my computer and I'll just type because it's more efficient and it doesn't disrupt them. Sometimes I record things, but, you know, not always. When I was having lunch with Mr. Hassler in Hangzhou, he took his notebook from his pocket and wrote down what I said to him. I was really excited and thought, I was, oh my God, I'm going to make it to The New Yorker or maybe even to his new book. I show my students, I always have a notebook with me. It's always in my pocket. Do you know there's an old saying in China, 
好记性不如烂笔头。I think the proper translation for that is、uh, the faintest ink is better than the best memory. <laughs> Good memory,、uh, yeah. Lamb before you always forget. <laughs> so that's one thing you realize when you take notes. And also, if you don't record it, it's amazing how much you forget. Like Leslie had a situation where she, she lost a lot of her notebooks in Egypt, and so then they were stolen. Some stuff was stolen, and so she tried to remember as much. She typed everything she could remember from these reporting trips. Then later, she we found the stuff, so she got it all back. And when she compared, she realized, oh my God, everything was wrong. Like she had forgotten so much. So it's really important, you know. So you have to keep. I I emphasize to my. I think that's one thing my students learn in the class right now. Is I say, you know, you've got to keep track of things. And I told them, you know, during this during the the eating, I said, you know, this is a historical moment, and you will want to remember this someday. So you should take notes. You know, remember. You know, write about what's going on. Write about the things you're noticing in your daily life. This it's an important historical moment. As I know, you're not alone in China back then. You're one of the peace cops. The other members in your group did the same kind of writing, right? Like Mei Yingdong and his northeastern China stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was so he was not my group. He was one year ahead, but also Rob Schmitz was my year. And Rob Schmitz was, you know, he he did the Changlalu, yeah. So so he wrote that, and it's really amazing how many writers came out of that program because we were not, you know, the Peace Corps is, does not. It's not really a Gaoji program. It's not like they take the best people from every, the top universities. Actually, you know, I went from Princeton. It was very unusual. I didn't know anybody else from my class at Princeton who joined the Peace Corps. Yeah, it's not an elite thing, not at all. It's a lot of like state universities, like Rob Schmidt. So he went to the University of Minnesota at Duluth. It's a good state school, but it's not like the top. Not like Berkeley. It's you know it's it's not like University of Virginia. His father was a tradesman, so he did something like with plumbing. I can't remember, but he was not a you know jishafenza at all. And Rob had no in. He did not want to be a journalist. He had trained to be a teacher in college, and that was his plan. But being in China changed his ideas. And so he got interested in journalism, and he realized he could probably do it. So he learned how to do it. And so it's really it's interesting that experience turned a lot of us into. So my group had only thirteen volunteers, and three of us became writers or journalists because there was also Craig Simons, and he wrote a book called *The Devouring Dragon* about the Huanbao in China. And so all three of us wrote books. And actually, all three of us married Meiji Huaren, who were writers. Well, Mangdong is separate because he was the year ahead of us. But Rob Schmitz,、uh, Craig Simons, and me—all three of us became writers. At this, out of thirteen, three, and then we married. So, if you count up the books from us and our wives, it's like eleven books or something. So it's it's sort of crazy because actually, if you looked at the graduates of the Harvard East Asian Studies department from that same time. They're not turning out as many books because that real experience, like being thrown into Sichuan Province in 1996, yeah, Mangdong was a year ahead and he was in Neijiang,、um, but yeah, and he's also an example. Like he he had an interest in journalism before the Peace Corps,、um, and he had gone to the University of Wisconsin at Madison, but the Peace Corps really helped turn him into a writer as well. They're not any good. 
<laughs> yeah, no, so we're, uh, no, I mean, we're very close. So Meyer and I, I call him Meyer, Meng Dong is, Meyer. I, yeah, everybody, we call him Meyer, but he's, uh, I mean, we're very close friends, and, you know, we were both struggling as writers at the same time, so we would, I would send him my book, and he would send me his book, and we edit each other's, I have a book of his that I need to edit soon, that he's, he's just finished another book, not about China, but about another subject, so no, it was, it was a very supportive community, you know, and, and we, we exchanged a lot of ideas, so we had a lot of influence on each other, you know, and, and, our, and our wives as well, right, I mean, so Leslie and I talked about writing, and, and I would edit her book, and she would edit mine, and and so it became kind of a community, and you help each other develop. So, no, I'm very proud to be part of, of, of that group of writers. But I think it's, it's amazing that we developed at that time. And it said something about the moment because it was a really good time to be in, like, Sichuan province in a, in a small city. Uh, I was once in a foreign media circle in Beijing. These foreign correspondents usually tend to use three words for China. Big China... Bad China, weird China. But you, on the very contrary, set your topics primarily on ordinary working class people. Um, why did you do that? So actually, when I was here before, I almost never wrote about anybody who was famous or really successful. I think I probably should do a little bit of that because it also helps you understand things, especially now because there are some people in China that are huge tycoons and they have a huge influence on society. It's good to know something about them. So I'm not opposed to that. But I also do think it's important to write about sort of average people. And it's true that all of the people who came out of the Peace Corps wrote about these kind of people. And why? Well, because we started out in places like Neijiang or Rob Schmitz was in Zigong. You know, I was in Fuling. These were average places. It was not Beijing, you know, or Shanghai. Um, also, we were all in Danwei, right? <laughs> we had a real job. <laughs> you know, we were in the TGNA, right? I mean, so like... So that's also a very useful experience. It's different from, and I was very grateful for that actually, because it gave me a totally different perspective. That's all for this episode. In next episode, we will interview Mr. He Wei about his nonfiction writing class in Sichuan University and his observation of Chinese nonfiction writing. At the end of this episode, we asked Mr. He Wei to recommend a book. One book that I would recommend, a series of books actually, is the biographies of Lyndon Johnson by Robert Carroll. Carroll's an incredibly meticulous researcher and he's done this amazing job of explaining who Lyndon Johnson was and what his life. And he's a president that most Chinese don't really know much about. He's not one of the most famous presidents for Chinese people. But I think actually you learn really important things about America by reading his story, especially about race, because he was involved in the civil rights movement and also in Vietnam War. So it's a great way to learn about American history. And his books here have been translated by He Yujia, um, who's, who's a really good translator. And, and so, you know, there's, I think there's two of them out and maybe, maybe the second one's about to come out. Anyway, they're, they're, they're steadily coming out in Chinese. So th- those are great books.